You're listening to the Achieving DevOps Podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. John, why don't you, I wanted to introduce you all to, to a friend of mine, John Weirs. Um, and he, John, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us kind of uh, where you're from, what your background is? Yeah, well, um, for the last, uh, I guess, coming up on 30 years now, wow, I've been in the uh, semiconductor industry. I've done a lot of things from writing MES systems or writing security software, communication software, automating tools and fabs. Um, and I guess over that, entirety of the experience, I find that, uh, you know, I kind of like management, I kind of like working with people, and I really like helping them get past things that don't really add a lot of value. As a technology geek, I love a good technology, a new piece of software, something that's shiny. Um, But after a while, there are things about my job that are just routine and mundane and don't add value. Um, Nobody likes running testing, nobody likes uh, really deploying software again and again and again, especially if you have to copy this DLL to that directory, this DLL to another one, and drop the user interface here and register this, that, or the other thing. Nobody really likes that, and so we should leverage automation or you know whatever technology it is to get rid of all of that, right? Um, there's not a lot of value in standing up hardware anymore. If you can just spin it up with a PowerShell script and have it drop in your landscape somewhere automatically. So I guess over the 30 years, I've gotten to where if I'm going to spend time playing with technology, by heck, I want it to be fun. And some of these things aren't fun anymore for me. So we're trying to get rid of the toil, the repetitive tasks, right? The boring stuff. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, think about stuff that adds value in your job or things that don't add value. There's not always a lot of value in reading email. There's not always a lot of value in... uh, deploying software, doing it the same way again and again, applying security patches to a server, rebooting a server. It doesn't help my business or anybody's business just doing that. And if I can free you up to do something better, let's do that. Then then you look forward to coming to your job and solving something interesting and innovative every day as opposed to, oh, well, today is just like yesterday. I'm going to patch servers and reboot servers and tomorrow will be the same. So yeah, let's let's remove all of the toil, all of the repetitive stuff, things that don't really increase your value or the business's value, and let's replace them with things that. So that's that's. I, someday I need to introduce you to, to my friend Tyler um, over at Red Hawk. He's he just told me a little bit ago, Dave, be flexible. I know so many sysops guys that are looking for work because someone automated their job away. So if it's repetitive, if you're just pulling <laughs> levers, in five years that job is going to shift. A machine will be different. Yeah. And so I, I guess that if I'm a sysops guy or system admin or something like that, and I realize that this is happening um, and somebody's kind enough to tell me, um, I'm going to probably go and try to retool myself. How can I become somebody that does that automation and be more valuable? Or how can I be somebody that writes code and be more valuable or something like that? Making that leap to, I mean, DevOps could be defined as bringing the benefits of code and version control to the ops world, right? Making think, that leap is not easy, uh, I think, for a lot of people. Well, we're all, we're all in this together here. We're all scared of things we don't understand or don't see or that are new or different, right? 
Uh, it's scary to stand up in front of people, not because they're horrible and evil or they're going to bite our heads off or anything like that. They're just unfamiliar. Um, and after you do it a dozen times or two dozen times, it's not such a scary thing to be in front of people. And if you're a sysadmin and your job is mostly just to patch servers and reboot servers, it's kind of scary that you don't have to do patch and reboots anymore. Uh, likewise, if your job is to deploy software and that's going to go away and be replaced by a button push out of Azure DevOps, yeah, it's kind of a scary world. And what are you going to do? But <clears throat> I think when we embrace change and uh, cause ourselves to learn and apply ourselves to a new area of skill, uh, there are things that our sysadmins understand about the way operating systems work that I just don't. Um, and if they learn to code a little bit, then they have a little more useful view of the world than I do, where they understand how to tweak the machines programmatically in a way that I may not. So they can easily be very valuable to the organization if they uh, learn a couple of new skills. But yeah, it's really scary to look into the, the future and not know what you're going to do tomorrow. That's fascinating. I, I love that. So. A year ago, John, when you and I first kind of got introduced to each other, you were senior manager of DevOps and software quality there at Micron, and that your team was about five months old at that. So now, yep. what, what is what is your function at, at Micron? What do you what do you there? Well, my title is still about the same: um, senior manager of DevOps and software quality. Uh, I manage a team of QA engineers. I have a team of software developers uh, as well that write security software and communication software. I own uh, most of our process in our way of IT. Uh, you could think about, about it like, how do we do business around here? How do we do what we do? Um, so I own helping to define that for our organization. And, uh, you know, one of the, the most interesting things about it, I think, is everybody pushes for, well, just make this decision. Let's just do it this way. Let's all align on this. But we do that when it suits us, if we're not careful, where it's easier for me as a senior manager to have the data clean for reporting. And even if that costs every developer an extra 10 minutes, um, it's easy for me to say, yeah, this is a great thing because it makes my reporting cleaner. Uh, even though there's 200 developers out there and it costs them each 10 minutes a week, right? That's that's a lot of time. So maybe it's not so advantageous to do process that way. Um, so really, I try to spend a lot of my time helping our organization think about uh, what is the best way to do things? Um, do we want to have manual deployments? Do we want to have not manual deployments or automated? Or how can we automate things in a way that everybody can kind of understand what's going on, but maybe not so strictly that everybody has to, uh, you know, go to the bathroom the same way and wash their hands exactly the same way on their way back to their desk, grab exactly the same cup of coffee, right? There are, there are localized optimizations based on what your team does that probably make sense. And I want you to embrace those. Um, but do it in a way that it's fairly easy to understand for everybody else. So that's that's an awful lot of what I do is help the organization try to think about how to do stuff better. And that's that's really interesting because uh, so many times it's like, wow, I really made my team better. Like the reporting example for for you know, there's some things that we do that can and probably should be, and the, we want the team to have as much autonomy as possible. But there's also some things that are more global that where we want to kind of do the same, like you mentioned hygiene, washing your hands. There are some things that 
we want to do the same way. Do you feel like the deployment pipeline is one of those things? Um, it depends on how far you go with that, right? Um, if I'm left-handed and I have to go to the bathroom and wash my hands exactly the same way, starting with my right hand and my right pinky, it may be hard and it doesn't add a lot of value. But, you know, if you're a surgeon, maybe there is a very prescribed way of washing your hands so that uh, you're perfect at it. But I don't know that deployment pipelines are 100% that way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, some systems have much wider impact if something goes bad. Some have much less impact when something goes bad. So the amount of telemetry and monitoring that I might put in place, in place for a mission-critical application is probably different than the, the amount of telemetry I put in place for something that uh, runs the basketball court scheduling program. Um, there's there's just a different level of criticality in what it needs. And I would prefer my teams are able to think through those things and make them look and feel the same, sure. But I don't think they have to be identical because what that tends to do is try to make everything look exactly homogenous. And that usually doesn't work so well because we're all unique and all of our teams are unique and our software is unique. And everything we do is different because our customers are different and our lives are different. But it's a simple answer for us to say, yeah, make it exactly the same uh, mm -hmm. because that's the way we do business around here. And we don't really consider that we may be hurting teams if we do. It's it's a hard balance to take because it's it's easier to support software if it's all done in the same so, um, same language, C Sharp mm -hmm. or Go or whatever. It's easier to build out our pipelines with the framework if we're saying thou shalt use Jenkins or Azure DevOps. Um, so sometimes it, it's nice for us to limit our operational complexity mm -hmm. with saying you're this is the framework that we support. And but by doing that, we take away something really valuable just by trying to make them. Look yeah, and I I think there's maybe a middle ground in there, or at least we seem to have discovered something that works pretty well as a middle ground. You know, we don't want total anarchy where everybody can choose their own version of a shiny widget or a Oracle library from, you know, a Russian Republic or something like that. Um, and not that that's ever happened, right? <laughs> no, not that that's ever happened. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, several sizes fits most is a pretty reasonable way of doing things. And what we do is we try to group our teams together and have them all send a representative to our periodic meeting and say, you know what, this is a proposal for us to do things the same way. Do you guys all think this is a good way of doing things? If they all agree, then yeah, let's align on that. Let's make it the same. Um, when we rolled out uh, Team Foundation server here, we got everybody in a room and we said, let's look at using this. And we sent a team out and they prototyped it. And they said, yeah, it seems to work the way that we expect. It runs in Windows. It runs in Linux. It can do our pipelines the way that we need. And uh, then we said, you know, let's get together and talk about how we should implement. And uh, all of the teams in our area said, yeah, Team Foundation server looks pretty good. Let's Let's go forward with it. And so we deploy it and we periodically meet again every couple of weeks and say, here's how things are going. Here's stuff that we want to do. Uh, should we align on this? Should we not align on this? And our developers are smart enough and yours are too at whatever company you're at to say, you know, some of these things make sense and we should align on them. And some of these things don't really add a lot of value and maybe we shouldn't align on them. Um, and by allowing the developers to get together and have that discussion, they own the decision and the empowerment, and they will then help their teams uh, rise to the occasion of performing the alignment that they said that they would. Um, and that's 
totally different from like a management approach where I could sit in my ivory tower or my office and say, okay, everybody, you're all using Azure DevOps. Here's a script that you're all going to follow. Make your pipelines look 100% the same. And uh, how often do teams then give me something that kind of looks the same, but really isn't the same because they realize um, I look at window dressing as a manager because I don't have time to go deep on everything. And so they hit the markers that I outlined for them, but the substance underneath is all different. I find uh, the, the Micron story fascinating because it's not like you guys are you guys are leading with hardware and you have these extremely long lead times. Uh, and the, we're talking about fab facilities, uh, uh, investments of hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. and they're, they're their security. Each each fab unit is, is an island, more or less. It's very challenging to create um, and sustained uh, change, I guess, with that kind of a big bet going on. Is that, that is. Yeah. Uh, you know what we, it's one of those things that we want to be better at is uh, is getting change out to our facilities faster. Um, and, you know, as, as part of our story, we've, we've gone from that taking, you know, between one and two years for some applications to virtually every application uh, somewhere down in around the one month time. So it's been a huge growth curve for us and we've made massive progress. But uh, even still, there's, there's some friction when we try to deploy software to, to our facilities. And, you know, uh, they, they prioritize safety in the same way that I prioritize safety, but we have two different meanings of the word. So for me, safety is let's make our changes small. Let's get them out there fast where we're not going to break stuff. And for them, safety is let's don't change anything because if nothing changes, nothing breaks. And, you know, there's, there's two different views of the world here. And I guess that's the classic dev and ops mentalities. And that's what DevOps is supposed to help us solve. And maybe we do that by all getting in the same room and saying, you know, um, we tend to have bigger problems if we wait until we have a massive batch of changes to try to get out into production. And then they all interplay with each other. The world seems to work a little better if we have a lot smaller changes. But uh, we also know you guys need to be bought into that. So let's get you on our teams a little bit and we can talk through uh, maybe how to do this differently or better or something like that. And that seems to really address the friction better than, you know, any sledgehammer might. But, uh, but yeah, it's hard to get stuff out into production, especially at a billion-dollar facility where uh, they don't like any kind of impact whatsoever. And that's that's interesting because you, you told me once, l- listen, Dave, you know, there's I lead by list. So, like, this is how you engage with your, your stakeholders and get them to – to realize that you see their point of view when it comes to safety. How, how did you go about that? It's uh, it's one of those that's been a couple of years, so I'm a little fuzzy on all the details here. Um, you know, <laughs> we, we, we grow and learn at a pretty hectic pace in the IT industry, so uh, there's some amount that uh, if you happen to work here and you're listening to this, you might say, yeah, John, you don't know what's happening anymore. Right. But um, <laughs> uh, as a general rule, though, I... I just go and talk to them and say, hey, show me what's uh, show me what's holding you back. Um, if I deployed this new software, why can't we deploy it tomorrow? What would your boss say? What would your customers say? What do they need to make them comfortable? Oh, well, they need A, B, C, D, E, whatever it is. Oh, well, let's talk with the team that's developing the software and let's figure out how to do that. Um, and maybe we can give you something that's closer. So... Uh, in today's world, the thing that seems to be holding us back now is we don't have a 
clean and clear way of communicating. We've tested everything that you care about at your facility using data that is uh, representative of your facility. And so that means managers in those uh, in those places want to deploy software to uh, their own test environment to make sure that it's fine. And it's hard to fault them for that, right? If they don't know what we've tested and that we've validated everything that they care about, uh, you know, it's hard to find fault and say, yeah, really, you should be careless, reckless, and just deploy it straight to production. What could go wrong? Um, and so we try to talk back and forth and say, well, yeah, if you really care about the test results here, then then let's get you in touch with the QA team and let's figure out what things you care about and what things they're already testing. And let's make sure that those things line up pretty well. Then maybe we can give you a report when we give you the software and you'll know what we already tested. And that could make it easier for you to deploy to production because then you can uh, go to your manager and say, yeah, here are the things that IT already tested for us, and we don't need to do that again. So again, it's it's let's figure out what the pain point is, what's really holding them back and causing the friction, and let's discuss it and figure out is there a way that we can get around it. Um, but I think in all of those cases, the thread that I see is uh, when we sit down and talk, it works pretty well. Uh, when I put in a ticket and give it to somebody else and say, you need to do this, it doesn't work so well. And when I send them an email and throw it over the wall, it doesn't necessarily work so well. So, you know, if we sit here and talk in person, then then maybe we'll uh, arrive at a common understanding and we can move forward where I just throw something over the wall and hope that it's going to stick on the other side. It, uh, it doesn't necessarily do what I expect. I remember we talked about that a year ago um, as well. Just changing culture is hard. And if we're not physically in the room doing that interaction, energy gets dissipated. When we're creating a ticket, uh, it just doesn't get interpreted right, or they just don't see things the way that uh, maybe we do, you know, the other group. And so it's it's hard to create that um, linked view of mission, a single view of. Yeah, we're all we're all kind of stuck in the same world where when somebody gives me some words that are typed up on a page, I hear them with my feeling. I don't right. hear them with your feeling. Um, and I hear them, if I've had a bad day, I, I hear them through that bad day. And you sound like a cranky crackpot that is sending me more garbage and doesn't understand my problems. Don't you realize what kind of a bad day I've had? And there's no possible way you could know this. And so if when we talk in person, yeah, it's much easier for me to hear the inflection and the tone of their voice and understand what's going on and realize that, uh, when they say what could possibly go wrong, there's an element of sarcasm there that I'm supposed to pick up on where I may miss that in an email. Um, and so, yeah, if we're, if we don't do things over the phone together or through video conferencing or being in person, it's really easy for us to lose track and you just become one of those nameless they people out there as opposed to one of us. And that's that's really the culture that we want to get to is we're all in the same team together. We're all pushing in the same direction or pulling in the same direction. And we all have the best interests of mind in mind. You know, I, I'm always reminded I read a lot of books by City Decker and some of the other safety people in the field. And what I see in them constantly is, you know, if the pilot knew that he was going to crash his plane, he probably would have done something different. Um, but being fairly rational folks, they try to make good decisions one after the next. And when they realize there's a problem, they try to save themselves. Uh, nevertheless, if a plane crashes, we need to understand 
not so much what part failed on the plane, but why the series of decisions that somebody in a cockpit made on the, at the sharp end of the stick, why would those have made sense to them at the time? Because only by understanding that do we really understand what causes something to go catastrophically wrong. Um, and it's the same in our IT worlds where I'm trying to deploy software to a fab. You know, the things that I may put together make perfect sense to me. But if you're not in my world, in my room, in, you know, my job, you don't understand the decision patterns that I'm making and the, the data that I'm using to make it. And you may read it and go, oh, that guy doesn't know what in the world he's doing. And so we have to actively put ourselves in the other person's shoes for a while and say, okay, what are they doing and why does what they're doing make sense? Because it usually does once we understand a little more about what's going on in their conduct. Yeah, circling back there to like the blameless postmortem. And I love Sidney Decker and what he said about, you know, like the human element. Do we start with blame? Blaming the bad human versus the guardrails we give them, the information we provide. Um, I'm really curious. You mentioned, I think the 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 whole shift left movement at Micron started about six years ago, um, and you moved a little more to, bit more towards unit testing. Um, do we still need to have that integration in UI test layer? What does that look like right now at Micron? Um, it changes quite a bit. Um, you know, when we started this, we said it was a mandatory thing. You have to do unit tests. Um, because at the time our culture was that we kind of built the software and we handed it to somebody else to test and we hoped that good things happened out of that. And, uh, you know, one of the events that kind of kicked us off uh, way back then is we had deployed uh, a piece of software to production that when it uh, sat on people's desktops and they double clicked it, uh, it didn't actually start up properly uh, or, or at all. Um, it crashed. Um flagrantly and uh, catastrophically, and everybody was aware that it was not right. Very but, visible, very embarrassing. Right? <laughs> oh, yes. It, it was horrible. Uh, but, you know, the developers are like, yeah, it kind of works on my box, so I don't, I don't see what's different. And that's where we realized, you know, something that we're doing isn't quite working here. And so we told everybody, yes, you have mm-hmm. to have unit tests. If the unit tests don't run, you don't get to go to production. Um, and there was a constant stream of people coming into my office for a number of months about how I was ruining their career and I couldn't possibly understand what testing really is or what software quality is or, you know, fill in the blank with every other catastrophe that I was going to single-handedly cause and wreck the known universe. Um, But I remember the day that the first person came into my office and said, yeah, this unit testing is fantastic. It's like, oh, tell me more. Um, And it, Turns out they'd finally hit a threshold of uh, code coverage and unit tests where they didn't really have to test anymore uh, because whenever they compiled the code, it ran through everything uh, automatically and they knew whether or not the software would run in production almost right then. And so it was easy for them to give some cases to a new developer and say, here, go try this, go code this up. Um, you'll know when you're successful when it does what you expect and it does not break any of the other unit tests. And they realized just how valuable it was at that point where you compile the code and it tells you whether or not it works right away. Um, and shortly after that, we had several other teams that kind of hit the same threshold. And now we don't really enforce it as much anymore. I mean, we, we say you should have, uh, you know, 60, 80% code coverage for your unit tests. And some systems do, some systems don't. 
but it's part of our culture and what we do. And some teams spend more time on unit tests. Some teams spend more time on a heuristic level of testing that they've put together, or maybe they have a regression test or an integration test. You know, whatever is based or is relevant to the software and the previous failure patterns safe. So if it's a completely mature product and, you know, it hasn't had any real amount of changes over the last 10 years, you know, maybe they make a few changes here and there and they, they put some automated regression in place and that's probably good enough. But the whole idea is that we don't just deploy stuff to production anymore without, um, and we don't even hand it off to somebody to test until we've tested ourselves on the development side. And that really helps us maintain quality as well, because just because your QA finds bugs, that's not an indication of quality. And just because QA doesn't find bugs, that's also not an indication of quality, right? You could be testing the wrong thing. And so you have to get to where your culture is. This quality thing, it's all of our jobs, right? As a developer, I have to write something that's going to work well and in every case in production. And as QA, my job is to break software, yes, but... Uh, um, hopefully to do it in a way that helps the developers make better software decisions. But, uh, you know, if we just look at my little island, I write code, I write QA tests, I deploy software, and we end up with bad, with bad outcomes. And we all have to be kind of in this together and say, you know, testing and quality, that's all of our jobs. And that's, it's, uh, so you said to me one time, it's, it's like telling people, make sure you come into work tomorrow wearing pants, right? <laughs> You don't have to do that. It just becomes a part of the way we do our work, right? I mean, like, like testing, it's like, of, I'm not going to yeah. roll this out to production without making sure we have some level check on this. <laughs> you know, I think uh, I, <laughs> I I was probably most proud of one of the days where a developer said, no, you can't go to production. Oh, mean. isn't that great? And they said, well, I, I'm not confident in it yet, and I don't think you should go. Well, okay, then. We'll wait. Um, but that was that was a real epiphany for me in uh, in this particular team because you know it's easy for us to deploy and it's easy for a manager or senior manager to say yeah why don't you go to production yeah you've got a history of quality you've done some good work yeah go to production um, it's kind of a scary thing for your average developer to tell his boss's boss or his boss's boss's boss no I don't think you should do that yet um, and. It typically is also a rare a rare leader or a manager in the organization that listens to that too. But uh, you know, that's that's part of how you know you've maybe arrived at a place better than where you were is when your developers are willing to sit there and say, No, you shouldn't go to production yet. We haven't tested it, we're not comfortable. And you and you you the litmus test is when the developers themselves are saying, I'm not comfortable with this. We're we're gonna hold off. That's I, hard to do. Especially when you have a stakeholder saying the business needs this right now. Uh, and yeah, if when my uh when people above me come to me, yes, you need to deploy this into production <laughs> today. I I'm sorry, I'll talk to the developers, but if they say they're not ready to get a production, we're not going to production. I mean, it's critical software, it runs fabs. Um, if we get it wrong, we crash things. We break wafers and we cost millions of dollars. We don't want to be uh, reckless about how we deploy software to production, regardless of who's screaming and where they sit in the organization. Uh, because if I deploy something that's bad, they're still going to yell at me. Um, it's not like uh, if I do what they say and I have a bad outcome, I get off scot-free uh, because they they have a legitimate concern that I get software out, and they also have a legitimate concern that I know how to do my job well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we as leaders sometimes forget that we need to have both halves of the conversation. 
it's easy for me to say faster, 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 faster um, without mentioning quality, 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 quality. And it becomes easy for the developers then to only hear faster and never think about quality. And to some degree, that's our fault as leaders. When we get software that's out into production where somebody's cut corners and we have mountains of technical debt, it isn't that the developers did the bad things or did a bad job or didn't think through things properly. We should start by looking at ourselves and the way that we communicate and what we have been emphasizing to them. Because um, it's easier for us as leaders to say, you know, we want a culture of quality and experimentation and a growth mindset on all of this. So we want you to experiment and to do things well and to try out new things and take uh, calculated risks and all of that, blah, 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 just so long as you don't screw up. And then you undo everything that you said. And we do that so often and so easily because we really want the best for production too. We want high quality software and things to go correctly. And we tell people, yeah, you need to make it right. You need to make it right, but you need to do it now, 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 now. And sometimes we dilute our message with the wrong things because we just don't think about it. You and I, sometimes we, we, we talked about that just recently. This, you know, we, we, we say, oh, we, we want to experiment. We want to take risks. But then there's such a heavy penalty when there's mistakes. Um, we're undermining our own, our own message and making it impossible for people to try new things and innovate. And it's a shame because the things that make us better are at an organizational level. Those things that really cause innovation and growth in our companies, those probably don't come from the managerial layer. Those come from the boots on the ground at the sharp end of the stick where they have to figure out solutions to problems. But it's insane for us uh, when we don't live at that sharp end of the stick to think that we understand how to do their jobs better than they do. And we we get in this mode where we think, well, this is how work should be done. And we punish people when it isn't done that way. But we don't really realize that at the sharp end of the stick, those decisions don't make any any sense anymore. And again, going back to one of Sidney Decker's books, you know, some of the checklists that pilots need to go through in certain situations take six minutes to do the checklist. And you think, oh, that's okay. Well, is it? Because if the entire approach and landing sequence only takes four, you can't do your checklist. So how do you ever land at that airport? And we do the same thing at the managerial layer so easily. Well, this is the process that you need to follow and you need to have it done tomorrow, even though it's like 60 hours worth of work. So yeah, and we have to sometimes realize that the things that we say sometimes don't make any sense. And if we haven't built a good culture, our developers won't necessarily come to our office and say, yeah, the world doesn't work that way. And if they don't, we will live in our ignorance and continue to make decisions that continue to not make any sense, that developers continue to ignore because they have to. And we will continue to berate them for not achieving goals, metrics, or whatever it is. And never the two roads meet, but somehow or another, as managers, we have to get out of our office and go look and say, why don't you show me what you're doing? Why it's not working the way that we expect? Oh, well, you do it differently because of ABCD. Well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Keep doing that. I'd had uh, a couple of medical problems and I'd had a surgery on my knee and I went into the hospital and uh, they sent me to physical therapy afterwards. And through the luck of the draw, um, I got this old curmudgeon physical therapist. And <laughs> I go in and I sit down for the first consultation and uh, it, he looks at me and I'm like 25 at the time maybe. And 
he looks at me and says, well, you need to make a decision. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, yeah, I mean, my schedule, I can figure out how to get in here and do the physical therapy and kind of get back, you know, and I'm kind of going down this road in my head and uh, the silence is there in the room. And he says, again, you need to make a decision. You need to decide if you want to die young or be a happy old guy. Do you want to be fat and sit on your couch and have a heart attack? Or do you want to see your grandkids? And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> and it made an impact on me because I realized that uh, the way that I was treating myself and taking care of myself was not up to par. And that's what had caused me to get an infection and uh, need to see him in the first place. And so, uh, you know, I said, yeah, I want to. I want to live, et cetera, and, uh, as everybody does. And he says, well, then you're going to have to actually work. And uh, he put me through some paces, and I got a bicycle, and uh, I started biking after work, and I did just a couple of miles, uh, just a little loop around where we lived, and uh, eventually uh, built up to where, you know, I'd lost 20, 30 pounds and had been a 5,000-mile-a-year biker. And I realized at some point that uh, life is pretty short, just to go and try to make people happy. And if I just seek to appease people with what I do or things like that, I don't usually get the greatest of results. And so through that period, I, I kind of came to a realization that uh, I cared more about making people's lives better and doing things right and doing things well than I did about people being happy with the results. And so you know, fast forward a few years and uh, they gave me this project at work and they said, here's a team they're working on this project to rewrite some software and it can go to production in the next next two or three weeks, months, something like that. And again, this has been just a few years, so the details are a little more fuzzy. But uh, I pulled the developers in and said, yeah, show me through this project. Show me what you've been doing. And uh, they said, well, um, yeah, we think it's ready to go to production. Oh, show me your test results. Well, you know, um, we'll have those as soon as we finish um writing the code. Well, what do you mean? How can you be ready to go to production in a few weeks if you don't have any test results yet uh, and you really haven't finished the code? Well, we think it'll work after we make these last couple of changes, et cetera. I think that means that it's not actually returning the right results. Is that, is that right? Um, yeah, but once we finish this code, it'll, it'll be fine. And that, that kind of scared me a little bit, but uh, as it should any manager. And uh, I went to the previous uh, previous uh, owner's director and organization and said, yeah, I have to tell you, um, we're not going to go to production on the schedule that you've outlined. And uh, worse than that, I can't tell you when. Um, what I can tell you is that when I tell you we can go to production, it will work perfect, um, but we won't go before then. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, just give me a new date. No, you don't understand. I'm not giving you a date. I don't know what the date is. Um, I can't even give you a date of when you might get a date from me uh, because what they have isn't even close enough to really, really get to production yet. So, um, and I made him uh, then go and talk to some of the customers and uh, our senior most leadership and say, yeah, um, we're going to go to production uh, on some other day, but uh, we don't exactly know when yet. Uh, and then for the next uh, number of months, uh, 
you know, there's a constant back and forth of, are you ready yet? And uh, me saying kind of the same thing, I'll tell you when I'm ready and we'll go to production when I say, but we're not going until that. So we have a contract. We need to let people off at the end of the contract and all of that. And we need to have these results and the usual business stuff around, um, you know, contract fulfillment and steps and all of that. And, you know, we had to do the same thing and say, listen, it works or it doesn't work. It needs to be bit for bit compatible in what it's deploying, because if it isn't, then then we end up compromising our fabs. So you have to make the software actually work. And, you know, hopefully there's a lot of other people out in the industry like me that are able to make that kind of a decision when you're faced with something where the easiest and most straightforward path is to say, yes, we can go to production and I'll just blame it on the contractors um, because that's easy, right? It's easy for me to stand up and say, yeah, I think it's ready to go to production and deploy it. But when it has a problem, it's similarly easy for me to say, well, this is a contract dispute. Somebody didn't do what they were supposed to. It's, it's the uh, I'm going to blame it on the developer. Yes. It's the offshore team. Yeah, that, right. that one's a favorite too. That's a classic. Um, whatever it is, right? But <laughs> I think the reality is sometimes we have to have the courage to say, you know, everything I look around in this room says there's smoke and fire everywhere. There's no way in the world I'm going to let people use it. Um, and as a leader, ideally, that's among the things that we're paid to do is make hard decisions and take a little bit of heat when when we make them and you know there was an awful lot of people that wanted to call and ask me what in the world i was thinking when i said no it does not work when they'd been getting uh indications from everybody else that it was working fine and the difference is you know maybe sometimes i don't necessarily believe what people tell me and i ask them to show me and when they show you sometimes you realize oh it isn't quite exactly the way that they they explained it or the way that I understood it or whatever it is. So yeah, as a leader, I guess part of what you need is courage to say, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Um, or as a leader where it's easy for me to say, yes, everybody will be a hundred percent the same uh, because that's what my boss wants. Uh, it's harder for me to say, no, I think that's wrong because not everything that they do is exactly the same. And it makes us poor as an organization when we enforce that kind of an arbitrary standard, as opposed to saying, you know, why don't we let them play and learn a little bit and let's see what they come up with, uh, as opposed to me just rolling something out to, to move on. Um, and maybe there's a place for innovation in some areas and not innovation in others. But at the end of the day, we as leaders are not here to mandate things. We as leaders are to uh, protect our teams and have some courage, take some of the heat when uh, our teams uh, haven't hit everything that they needed or gotten the results that they wanted yet, or they're not comfortable yet or whatever it is. But our job is to make them better at their jobs and help them have a better experience at work and career and whatever it is. And I think when we approach life with that in mind, it's a little easier for us to make some of those harder decisions where that's fine. If you're completely unhappy with me because I said, no, I'm not going to deploy the software, then that's fine. You can get rid of me. I'll go find someplace else to work. Um, but more often than not in my career, um, I've been rewarded for making those kind of hard calls and I haven't usually been beaten for them. And hopefully that's what, you know, other people's experience has been as well. You know, 
something's not right, you know, let's put a stop to it and let's not screw things over in production before, uh, just because that's... Yeah. I mean, this wasn't just a short delay. This wasn't like a month. This was 11 months. 11 11 months months of people thinking John's a bad person. John is throwing him, you know, and and, uh, yet this you know, the, the team was not ready. And yes, there was an easy way out, but the long-term cost was your rep. And ultimately your job wasn't threatened. You actually strengthened your position by having the courage to say, the quality isn't there. We're going to hold off. And, you know, I hope that's not a, a solitary experience. I hope that other people in the industry see that as well, where the thing that I have most of all that I'm proud of is, you know, my reputation. And we don't, do stuff halfway. We take care of our teams and our people, and we value them more than just the result that they're able to get us because they're people too. And, you know, I hope that's other people's experience too, that your reputation is a lot more important and uh, the way that you treat people is a lot more important than just the results that you get. And uh, things seem to work out reasonably well for me when, when I remember this and when I've forgotten, things don't nearly work out as well for me, or at least I'm not as happy with myself. Maybe that's it. Uh, one last question I wanted to ask you. You and I always go back and forth on like metrics, uh-huh. you know, and we laugh about it. Like there's no number that an engineer can't fudge or find a way around. And uh, we talked a long time ago about uh, Bob Lewis's IS Survivor columns, for example. Yeah. Um, what are some what are some metrics that we were talking about lead time a year ago, but since then I think you've shifted a bit. We're trying to shift away from it. We're not as successful as I was hoping we were going to be there. Um, but but here's here's what we found, um, and this goes back to some of the same things that Bob Lewis speaks about and various other people. Um, I remember a couple of stories by Sam Guckenheimer uh, from Microsoft that uh, really resonated pretty well with me uh, on this topic as well. You know, I can I can come up with a metric or an indicator that says, are we directionally correct as an organization, right? If we're doing the right things, we will see it in this particular uh, chart and the, the indicator will move in a particular direction. That's good. That's what we want. When people do good things, we see it show up on the chart and something has moved. Um, and then we're tempted to say, yeah, let's do more of that. So we'll, in the first iteration, start emphasizing the things that people should do better. And it usually works. And the the indicator improves again. And then we say, you know, we need to do a lot more of this stuff. And we're going to set a target. And uh, we're going to put a dot on the graph. And everybody needs to work towards hitting that. Because that will get everybody to be aligned and uh, have the right visibility and understand what they're being scored against and all of that, all of that. And as soon as we do that, we we start a fundamental shift. No longer is it an indicator that says, are we doing the right thing? Now it's a target. And once I have a target, engineers are very, very good at hitting targets. Um, We also call that gaming the metric, right? If I want four days in test, it will be (laughs) four days in test, regardless of how many days it actually took to test it the metric will show four days in test because that's what we want. And so by setting targets on things, it's very easy for us to say, yeah, our cycle time should be 45 days or 40 days or 60 days or whatever it is. And all of a sudden, magically, we start to hit it. But we realized that, oh, well, somebody decided this one 
was in scope or out of scope, or maybe we shouldn't measure it this way or should measure it some other way. And in doing all of those localized decisions, uh, our people are getting to where they're pretty good at hitting a target, uh, which is what we asked them to do. We wanted them to hit the target. We didn't want them to necessarily improve their teams or to do things right. I mean, we say that, but by putting money on a target or a particular place or any of that, we've helped them understand that the thing that we really care about is that this dot aligns with that dot, not whether or not the things that they're doing in their team are good or bad or indifferent. We want the dots to line up. And so that's the danger in, in metrics that we go back and forth with quite a bit. Um, you know, every metric that I come up with when they're good metrics, they resonate really well. They help us be directionally correct, but they only last for a year or two. Um, and then somebody starts putting targets on them and I need to kill them. And I need to come up with something else that gives me a directional indicator on the health of our organization. Um, and I know that as soon as I come up with one of those two, if I come up with a great one, it's got a lifetime of about two years before somebody's going to have put enough targets on it that I need to kill it and do it again. Um, because engineers and managers and everybody else in the world is really good at hitting a target. <laughs> We're so good at gaming the system, I hear you. We are programmed to hit <laughs> targets. And by heck, we're going to do it. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, we had the book Accelerate come out. Adora, uh, that, that group said, well, it's a combination of lead time and uh, number of successful builds and number of releases. And uh, I forget the other component, but they came up with the metric saying, this is your grade, your letter grade when it comes to DevOps ready. Uh -huh. I might be simplifying that. Yeah. I don't think you and I kind of go that direction where we can just blindly say those four things put together tells us we are directionally correct. You know, I can, I can, if I look at that kind of data, I think, yeah, the data is right. And yes, it does tell me if I'm directionally correct, but God forbid I make a metric that shows up on somebody's uh, magic page, they show to executives and we put a target on it, then it doesn't matter anymore because <laughs> now it's a target. It's not an indicator. And it's right. associated with whether I get paid or let go. So you better believe it's like, <laughs> oh, guess what? I found 45 magical bugs last week. I'm going to go code Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I coded so many bugs, I'm very productive. Right? <laughs> is, that, is that the way it works? I, I'm unclear on that topic. But. <laughs> yeah. So I like that, that these these KPIs that we choose don't have an infinite shelf life. For you, you found at Micron. It's about then. We got to start over. We have to find something else. It stops working after a while. We start trying to aim to at the target instead of figuring about at what what the actual for that. And I guess that's that's maybe where we kind of end things. At the end of the day, what matters is that we're creating value for our company, for a business that we care about our families and our our peers at work. That. Uh, all of these intangibles about our life, those are the important things and that we're important as people, not so much important for our ability to fling code or reboot servers or things like that. And when we invest in those things, we're better. When we invest in hitting targets and moving indicators and needles and um, making graphs look pretty, um, that itself doesn't change our business and doesn't change ourselves and doesn't change our lives. So, you know, maybe the, the point for managers is realize that all of those things that are easy for you to do, looking at metrics, indicators, et cetera, those things don't add value. The things that do add value is spending a little bit of time with your team, you know, visiting one of them in the hospital, helping them understand, you know, what's important for the business or not for the business or whatever it is. But 
let's live life together and uh, not so much let's just try to turn this into a transactional hit the numbers uh, system where I tell you to have your butt in your seat for 10 hours a day or 11 hours a day and swing code a certain number of lines and hit indicators and stuff like that. Um, because all of the best stuff happens in that gray and squishy world that's really hard to measure and not in a concrete world of metrics and charts. I love it. Well, um, if you've read the book, everyone, you'll, you'll, there's much more detail about this in our interview with John. Um, the book is kind of sprinkled with uh, John's thinking, actually. We, I started calling them uh, weirisms after a while. Uh, what, are, oh my what am I? I know, right? You're... <laughs> Well, one of, the, one of my favorite weirisms, yes, and I'm going to use that again. If it comes easy, it doesn't stick. Really like that. So, John, I appreciate your time today. I, the Micron story is fascinating. It's a work in progress, but you've made a huge headway, even just in the last year since I've, I met you. Uh, thank you for taking your time to talk with me. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, uh, it's been a blast uh, following this journey with you over the last couple of years. So thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. And we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.